0: Yeah! (laughs) Good morning! I am Pastor Mike, and before getting into the message today, I actually wanted to give you all a brief update on our Guatemala team. I believe we got a picture of them at the airport. It's kind of like a hostage photo. I swear they went. Um, This team has been through the ringer already. They had canceled flights. They left a day late. It's been a mess, but they are on their way, and they'll be arriving in Guatemala shortly. Yes! All to say, please be praying for them over the course of this next week as they do some good kingdom work across the world for people who desperately need it. Amen? Amen. 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 Now, I want to start the message by changing course pretty much dramatically, and that is by talking about what I believe is one of the most absurd aspects of American culture, which can be summarized simply by the word MORE in all caps. We as Americans are obsessed with MORE, 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 are we not? Most, thank you. The most obvious example I think that we can pull from our culture is our supersized foods, which in the year 2022 of our Lord has reached a breaking point, an absurd degree. For example, there's this monstrosity. This is a 50-pound Mount Olympus burger at Mount Olympus Restaurant in New Jersey, or my personal favorite, this guy at Patty's Pub. Whew! The Bacon Bomb Challenge. For those who are interested, this is five pounds of pork, beef, and sausage wrapped in bacon and cooked on a pig roast. It's equivalent to the size of a football wrapped in bacon. Anyone want that this week? Someone. You guys are messed up. God bless America. Anyway, outside of these absurd examples, we can actually see this trend statistically as well. Over the past 20 years, America's portion sizes have exploded. The average American hamburger is now 23% larger. And y'all, our soft drink sizes have grown by 52% on average. That's a lot of soda. But it's not just food. There's also our stores and our homes has also been shaped by more, more, more. On average, American superstores have 40,000 unique items on their shelves, which is 12,000 more than those same stores in Europe. And during what's been called the McMansion phase of American life, the average American home has nearly doubled in square footage since 1970, while lot sizes have stayed the same or in some places actually shrank. But my favorite example is America's love of ludicrously large automobiles. And instead of showing y'all pictures of Hummers and whatnot, I actually want to get boring and show you a bar graph. Let's get that up right there. So on this bar graph, each bar captures the height and the width and the length of a popular large pickup or SUV, except for three randomly mixed in. Who wants to guess what those are? World War II tanks, (laughs) y'all. We have the Sherman, the Panzer, and the T-34. And notice, our cars are bigger than these. So next time you hear someone say they're driving around in a tank, they mean that. The Germans would be running away. It's wild. We're just going to Target. More, more, more. This is America. Am I right? And we laugh, but this is actually quite telling about some of America's values as a culture. You see, every culture produces stuff, artifacts, social, economic, political, religious objects that we in the culture create and then seek after, right? And if you're discerning, these objects, these artifacts, can actually tell us about what a culture wants more of and thus what it values. Just think about it. Though ridiculous, these examples do reveal things about what American culture upholds as desirable worth devoting our time, our talents, our money to gaining more of. Based on these examples, what do we as Americans want more of? What does our culture value? Just shout some things out. Money, money. stuff. Was that? Power. Power. Sure. Mega church. Too real, my man. How about comfort? Status, right? People looking at us and thinking we're a big deal, right? Yeah, greed, consumption, convenience. 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 How, about, how about choice, options, right? And here's what's interesting. You see, though some of these examples are insane, notice that some of the values we got from them are actually good, right? And this is the strange quality of culture. It highlights a truth about the nature of culture. And that is, no culture is inherently all good or all bad. It's simply the environment that we live within. It's the air that we breathe at all times. And each has positive and negative values, even in their most absurd examples, even in the most absurd objects. All cultures are a mixed bag. But understanding both these objects and the values that our culture upholds that we can see within them, that matters. Because, I'm not sure if you know this, we as human beings are incredibly impressionable. We are shaped by what we interact with, always changing more and more into something. Therefore, if we live without discernment, if we live without intentionality in our lives, then I promise you that something will be determined by what we interact with the most, which is what? Our culture and its values both the good and the bad, the ludicrous. You see, without awareness, our culture's values and what it produces will shape us. It will shape our lives. It will shape our values as well. What we strive for, what we become more and more of, be it big food, stores, cars, homes, or the values underneath them, comfort, stuff, security, the whole mixed bag will be absorbed by us if we're not aware of it. Thus, as Christians, it's not that we should fear culture. I am not spouting culture war junk. That's what I'm talking about here. No, it's that we need to be reflective as we live within it. As we pass by all the McDonald's and the Hummers and all the things that they represent, we just need to be willing to reflect on our lives, willing to measure what our lives reveal about which values direct our desires our attitudes, our behaviors, our worldviews, willing to reflect about what we want more and more of because that's telling us what we are actually becoming more and more of. Are you following me? And we need to reflect on that because we need to know what's shaping us the most. Is it Jesus or is it this American air that we breathe? And that reflection, is what is gonna set the course for us in our new summer series more and more. Where well, we're gonna dive into the book of Philippians from the New Testament, which tackles this very conversation on culture and the kingdom of God explicitly. And I love Philippians. It invites us into this beautiful, unique vision of discipleship where through a relationship with Jesus, we experience lifelong transformation. It's a vision of discipleship that's countercultural. That's defined by service, generosity, humility, making Philippians a truly prophetic book for us in the kingdom of more and more and more, for us as 21st century American Christians. and I'm not gonna spoil it any further, but y'all, I'm just excited. I love this book. Who is with me? Who's ready? Huzzah! Let's dive in. (laughs) So we're gonna dive in. I think the most important thing to note right off the bat is that Philippians isn't a book. This is a misnomer when we talk about the New Testament. It's a letter, one of 21 that make up a large chunk of our New Testament story, which creates some unique challenges. I think the first challenge is that we can't treat these letters like a grab bag of isolated, inspirational verses, because these letters were written with intentionality, crafted as one literary whole, so we can't just pluck parts out of them and think we're going to understand them. The second, maybe more important challenge, is that when it comes to the letters, context is king. You're going to hear the word context a lot in this series, and that's because each letter was written to a specific church community, in a specific time and place with a specific problem. Essentially, we are reading someone else's mail, so we have to engage them as such. We have to try to engage them from the audience's perspective, else we are going to misunderstand them. But in context, they're powerful. Because what they essentially show us is how the earliest Christians applied the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to their immediate, unique setting and wrestled with the truths of the gospel in it, making them very, very profound. We just have to keep that context in mind, okay? With that in mind, let's begin. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. We read, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So immediately, we're introduced to two key components of Philippians, which is the author and the recipient. The authors are Paul and Timothy. Now I can tell you that Paul likely roasted the content of Philippians. He produced the actual message of Philippians and Timothy acted as more as a scribe writing it down for him. And Paul in particular is a critical New Testament figure. You see, Paul was this guy who had a mystical experience with Jesus. And overnight, he transformed from persecutor of the church to actually the first missionary of the church. And what he did is he spent his entire life traveling the Roman Empire, planting church communities, and then keeping in touch with them, as we see through letters, providing encouragement, giving them advice, all these kind of things that you'd expect if we were texting each other today, right? And what we also know about Paul at this time is that when he wrote Philippians, he was doing so from a prison cell, likely in Rome. He wrote Philippians near the end of his life, which is going to play a big part of what comes later in this letter. However, who is Philippians written to? The Church of Philippi! The Church of Philippi! Someone got it! Bam! Get it, Philippians, Philippi, don't worry about it. The church of Philippi, which we know from Acts was the first church that Paul planted in Macedonia. It was led by this woman named Lydia, and it became a diverse community of both Jews and Gentiles from across the socioeconomic spectrum, also going to play an important role later in this series. But for today, I actually want to focus on the culture of Philippi itself, because perhaps more than any of Paul's letters, it impacts the content of Philippians dramatically. Here's a Philippi on a map of the Roman Empire to get us started. You can kind of see it over here, right there in Macedonia. And this is an interesting town. You see, Philippi was a critical trade city along one of Rome's most important roads going out east. And it also played a monumental role in first century Roman history. After Julius Caesar's assassination, you guys know that historical event, Et you guys got it. After his assassination, his adopted son, later renamed Caesar Augustus, won a civil war for the right to basically run the empire. Notably, after winning a defining battle at which city? Philippi! Come on, guys, really? (laughs) He won a defining battle at this city, which Augustus commemorated by making Philippi a retirement spot for Roman soldiers and declaring it a Roman colony which is a rare status, and it's critically important for understanding this letter. You see, the Roman Empire were pretty bad dudes, and they controlled a lot of conquered cities, but not every city was a Roman colony. You see, by being a Roman colony, that meant that your city, in this case Philippi, became a legal extension of the city of Rome itself. It became understood in the Roman world as the very soil of Italy which in the Roman Empire meant a couple things. First, it meant privilege. A Roman citizen living on Roman soil meant you had more rights, more status, more honor, pride, benefits of the empire. And second, it meant that you were intensely tied to the Roman imperial identity, culture, and religion. Culturally speaking, your town was shaped down to its very architecture, as if it was literally Rome itself. But more so, religiously? You see, under Augustus, the emperor was elevated from just the king of the Roman Empire to godhood in the Roman Empire, to the status of divinity. And y'all, you could worship other gods in the conquered places in the Roman Empire, but could you worship other gods in a Roman colony? An extension of Rome itself? Heck no! In a Roman colony, you were expected to worship one God, and that's Caesar. To fail to worship Caesar would result in social isolation, economic hardship, and persecution. All to say, what you need to understand as we go on this journey is that this community lived at a unique intersection of intense, and I mean intense, cultural pressure from the outside Roman world, and in a weird way, pride about their own identity as Roman citizens in a Roman colony. Hold on to that thought. But despite this, what we know about Philippi and the church there was that this community thrived. Philippians is by far Paul's most positive letter. And y'all, if you have read Paul's letters, you know that he is not always the most positive dude. Am I right? This community was crushing it. He doesn't even address a catastrophic issue that he's trying to fix within them like we usually see in books like Galatians and Corinthians. No, what we rather see is he's writing them to ease their anxiety about his imprisonment and to express his gratitude for them. And that's because despite their own hardships, the Philippians had overflowed with generous, generous giving. They had supplied funds to help churches struggling through famine in Judea. And they had even sent one of their own members across the world to Rome to care for Paul in prison. Paul loves this community. They are, like I said, crushing it. And you can feel that affection in this next section where Paul writes this prayer for them that I think is one of the most beautiful passages of the New Testament. We already heard it, but I want to reread it again from verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you I mean, it's just like, just sit with the buzzwords of it. Love, fellowship, partnership, generosity, joy, thankfulness. It's like a big hug, right? In Paul's mind, this church embodies what Christian community should be. But I want you to also notice this. There's an implied challenge underneath this. Despite all the warm language, Paul is challenging them on a key part of what it means to be Christian, and that is to pursue continued growth. Let God complete his work that he's already begun in you. Let your love overflow more and more. Keep growing in knowledge, understanding, and depth of insight. Do y'all see it? Paul's like, you're doing great, but keep growing. Do not stop. He's setting up this vision of discipleship that's going to become the through line of the entire book. It's a vision of discipleship defined by perpetual growth, first and foremost where through this intimate relationship with Jesus, disciples embrace following Jesus not as something with a finish line, but something as a lifelong process defined by progress, not perfection, every day of our lives from beginning to end. Now, that growth requires a model, right? If we're gonna be urged to grow forever towards something, we have to have something to grow towards, am I right? Well, Paul supplies that. In this profound hymn in chapter four or chapter two that forms the gravity of Philippians. What we're gonna see is that everything is gonna circle around the model within it. And Scott's gonna teach on this explicitly in a few weeks, but I wanna just read through it now in the passage preceding it to get it on our mind, because everything is gonna come back to this. It starts in Philippians chapter two, verse one. others. And what Paul's doing here is he's setting up, again, that this community is crushing it. He's urging them, continue growing in Christ's likeness. And here's the most important part, because once he sets up this image of community, starting in verse 5, he's going to move in this hymn that sets up the power of this, more the engine that empowers such a community. We start in verse 5, and this is the hymn. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And like I said, we're going to dive into this explicitly in a few weeks, but y'all, this is the juice for Paul in Philippians. This is it. For Paul, discipleship is ever increasingly exchanging our stories for Christ's story. And what does Christ's story look like? It fundamentally looks like a God humbly entering into our world, becoming just like his creation, not to gain power, status, or privilege, but to do what? To serve and bless others. Paul thinks this is the image of the Christian life. This is the model that we are to strive for. And throughout Philippians, what we're going to see is that Paul's going to take these attributes of Christ that we found in this prayer, in this central hymn, love, joy, humility, servanthood, self-emptying, self-sacrifice, unity, partnership, gener- generosity, whoo, hope, discernment, and he's going to urge them to keep growing into them more and more. He's going to lovingly but authoritatively remind them, y'all, though you're doing great, you have not, quote, unquote, made it. And we're like, Paul, chill, bro. Like, can't you just give them a pat on the back? Can't you just say, add a boy and leave it at that? Well, no. Because what Paul understands is that there is a danger hidden in spiritual success, which is letting complacency, completionism, and exceptionalism creep into the Christian life. It's coming to believe that following Jesus has some finish line in this life, and I've reached and I'm better than you, and I can just stop growing now which Paul believes is truly dangerous as an attitude for anyone, but it's an especially dangerous attitude in his mind for a church that lives in a culture like Philippi. You get what I mean? I actually want to return to those opening verses. What does Paul introduce himself as? They're not up. Verses. There we go. What does Paul introduce himself in Timothy as? Servants of Christ. Servants can also be translated as slave, by the way. And what title does he give Christ in chapter, or verse 2? Can you flip over to that? What title? Lord. Lord. This is interesting. You see, elsewhere in his letters, Paul almost always introduces himself first and foremost as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is a title of authority. His letter to Christians in Rome in fact, is the only other letter where he uses the term servant in his introduction at all. And this is the only letter in the entire Bible where the only title that he claims is servant or slave. And though Paul loves calling Jesus Lord quite often in his letters, this is actually the only time that he identifies Jesus as Lord in the very opening sentence of one of his letters. And you might ask, so what? Well, I want you to think about Philippi. Think about that key word context this proud Roman colony filled of Caesar-worshipping Roman citizens. Let me ask you this. If Roman citizens are at the top of your social hierarchy, who is at the very bottom? Servants or slaves? That is a title with no status, zero privileges, zero benefits, rights, or pride. And y'all, if Jesus is Lord, who is not? It ain't Caesar. Y'all, from his first words, Paul employs an explosive countercultural statement to remind this church living at the center of Roman pride and nationalism that Jesus has turned their world upside down. You see, Paul gets human malleability. He gets culture. He gets that despite their success, they need a constant reminder of what story they hold. He gets that complacency, completionism, and exceptionalism aren't just falsehoods in discipleship. They are doorways for old stories, identities, and values to creep back in from that surrounding Roman culture, some of which weren't bad. Rome made some great roads, y'all. But others, like imperial power, oppression, domination, violence, pride, some values were incompatible with Christ Jesus. Paul's saying keep growing because Rome will never stop screaming at you that you are first and foremost Roman citizens loyal to who? To Caesar. But that's not your story anymore, Paul says, right from the start. Who's their story? Christ is their story. And in his story, you're first and foremost humble servants or slaves of a crucified servant king. Don't, in complacency, let Rome creep back in, Paul says, and swallow up the good work God's done in you. And y'all, for me, this makes Philippians so powerful as an American Christian in the 21st century. I hope this isn't shocking for anyone to hear, but America is an empire, y'all, and it has cultural elements that I know I will absorb if I walk around this life unaware. And don't get me wrong, some of those values of being an American are good. Some of them rule, right? The ideals of opportunity, of liberty, justice, equality, some of our American values that we uphold as our ideals are great. And yet, some are antithetical to Christ in that hymn in chapter 2, Are They Not? Hyper-individualism, greed overconsumption, obsession with power and status, tribalism, violence, objectification, go outside. These exist in our American culture. And in complacency, they are the air that we breathe in. And in that, I think Paul challenges the Philippians and us today to reflect, what are we growing more and more into? Is it the knowledge, understanding, humility, and love modeled by our crucified king? Or the division, the resentment to others, the retaliation, the pride, the greed that saturates our culture? Not for shame, but to redirect us back to who we truly are, which is what? Servants of Christ Jesus. And I need that constant reminder. I don't know about you. Because you know what I want to see more of, more of in myself, in my world? I want to see more and more self-sacrificial love, not self-centeredness. I want to see more and more humility, not pride. More and more generosity, not greed. More and more joy, not despair. Compassion, not resentment. Unity, not division. Who is with me? Who wants more and more of the example set by a humble, self-emptying, loving God in ourselves, a relationship in our world? Am I the only one? Who wants that this summer? Well, I've got good news because that's the invitation of Philippians. And it's countercultural image of discipleship where we participate in Christ's story as more than something that we simply know and something that we can gain more and more of in our lives. And that is good news. But, y'all, to experience self-growth, we're going to have to do some things. We're going to need to measure our stories against Christ our past, present, future, our relationships, our self-talk, our desires, our dreams. We'll need to name where we've been complacent and self-satisfied in our discipleship, where we've allowed our identity as American citizens to overtake our identity as heavenly citizens and as servants to Lord Jesus. And that can be hard, but y'all, if we are willing, Philippians promises us that Christ will lead us into ever deeper Union and self-discovery of who we truly are. A life defined by more and more peace, joy, humility, love, contentment, generosity. A life shaped more and more by this God who so loved his world that he gave his only son, not for prestige, but as a servant to all, to save all. And that's good news, is it not? Can I get an amen? Amen. So, as we head into communion, where we symbolically participate in that self-giving sacrifice of Christ Jesus. I just invite you to reflect during this last song on where you need to become more and more like our crucified king this summer. And we'll take communion, committing to seek that together. On the night he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this olive oil. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Father God, pour out your spirit on us in these gifts of bread and wine. Make them for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, amen. The table is open, come and take communion as you feel led.